Hello and welcome back to Control or Delete. My guest today is Nova Reed, a TED speaker, activist and author. Nova uses her past experience working in mental well-being to encourage meaningful change from the inside out in many areas of how we live our lives, including anti-racism work. Her work is really powerful and energising and moving and I really admire and respect everything that she creates. I'm a long-time follower on Instagram and it was so good to talk to her about her new book, which is called The Good Ally, A Guided Anti-Racism Journey, which is an urgent call to arms to become better allies to each other. She provides such a thoughtful approach, centering her conversation around collective healing and really encourage us to dig deep into self-discovery. She regularly appears on BBC News, Sky News and BBC Radio and has written for Stylist, Metro, Refinery29 amongst loads of others. She was also the founder of multi-award winning wedding platform New Bride which is so interesting and I love what she has to say in this episode about doing multiple things, activism, setting boundaries this internal interrogation that we should be doing and self-development. She's personally inspired me to get more uncomfortable with my own hidden stuff that I needed to look at. And by reading her book, it really encouraged me to go even deeper into many aspects of this conversation. And I hope it does the same for you. Please do go out and support Nova and get a copy of The Good Ally. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Nova and here it is. So I'm so thrilled to be in person with Nova Reed, who I've been following for a while and have been looking forward to your book for so long. <laughs> Thank you, Emma. How glorious to be in person after all this time. Oh, I've been so looking forward to this and I just knew we would have a really good chat. So mm. this is really special. And as you can see, Nova, your book is on front of me on the table with lots of pages turned down. There <laughs> were more, but I've made so many notes in it. It was a real reminder to me that it's not over. None mm. of this is and it's an ongoing process. And in a way... It was harder to be reminded of that, but thank God I was. So thank you. We're going to dig into the book in a bit properly, but in the intro, you say that this work, this anti-racism work that you do, wasn't in your career plan. No. So that was so interesting that you put it like that. My gosh, I just kept getting pulled and pulled and pulled. And if I'm honest, it's been a thread throughout my life because I'm a black woman and I navigate experiencing racism. So it's kind of unavoidable in learning how to navigate it and just be. Um, And there's always been a thread when I was at university, I experienced probably the most disarming racism. And my dissertation was about encouraging institutions. I I studied at a a performing arts institution called London Studio Centre. And so it's very much about churning actors and actresses in the West End on TV and film. And there was three black folk in my entire year Um, and there were hundreds and there was always this feeling or this rhetoric that it's oh it's just because there's not enough of you or that you're not talented enough and I'm like as in black folk and like we are talented and there are many of us but we don't have access to these spaces because it's elitist and it costs several thousands of pounds to get in all of us were on scholarship that's the only reason we were able to be there And so my dissertation was about we are good enough as in black talent. Um, And then it sort of thread through to working in the wedding industry and starting a wedding blog about lack of representation of black brides and then couples and then multicultural love. And then 
um, you know, diversity and inclusion training. So there's always been a thread, whatever path I've done, even in mental health, um, it's led me back to this core thing because, of course, everything is is connected. So I don't think it was anything I decided to do. I think it was a calling. Definitely. And I think it's really interesting to hear that thread kind of objectively because you are you know, a really authoritative voice in this space now. You've helped people all through your career. Yeah. You've worked in the mental health space. You've worked with uh, disability. You, you're, I, I feel like, like you're very kind of calming and quite spiritual presence as well with your work. Wow, And thank so you. for all of that to tie up and for it to come at this time in 2021, wow, pff, what yeah. a journey to get here. Thank you. And you know, there were so many times throughout my, let me talk specifically about career, where I felt like I wasn't good enough, where I felt like I was drifting, where I felt like I didn't know what I was doing, where I would hear mum saying, you're not focused because I like doing lots of different things and I'm good at lots of different things. But I heard that as you're not, you're unfocused and this is not a good thing. And so there were many times where I was like, I was feeling really lost, but that that thread was always there. I just didn't, I wasn't paying attention. Um, and so when summer 2020 happened, I, it was very difficult and I also felt very rooted and like, now I know why every single path I've been, I've had led me to this moment and I'm here to serve and I've never felt more like I'm walking in my purpose. Wow. You know, obviously I talk about careers on this podcast as, as a general theme, but we dig into other things, but sometimes I feel like other people can see it in you more than we can see yeah. it ourselves. So it's great to, sure. to notice it. Um, could we just touch on quickly before we dive in just what that summer of 2020 was like for you, just because even from a like Instagram perspective, you know, it, it would have been a bit of a tough time to have that many eyeballs suddenly on you, was it? It was awful, if I'm honest. Like, like I again, I talk a lot in my work about the duality of being human and having conflicting feelings and like like just holding both at present at once and so I was rooted and grounded and it was a really challenging time for me at the same time um my hair fell out mm. uh my own trauma was triggered and um on top of that I'm trying to run my business which obviously centers around anti-racism and everybody wanting me at the same time that's not sustainable for anyone and nobody could foresee that kind of appetite or growth and I remember like beating myself up like oh I haven't got systems in place and nothing's automated because people were at that point I think um course sign up to a manual and I couldn't cope and I and I thought it was something wrong with me and my friends were like well Nova nobody could have anticipated this kind of interest in your work in one go because normally you know sometimes I'm struggling to pay my bills it was like tumbleweed at times um, very inconsistent. So it was all of that. And I'm trying to figure out all of that stuff whilst I had a, a workshop I was delivering that was in the diary for ages for for white women in particular, not exclusive, but in particular, to start unpacking their racism. And that was days after this increase. Um, and people that I hadn't heard from in years, that I have no kind of relationship anymore, suddenly getting in touch and not to check in and ask if I'm okay, but to make them feel, selves feel, feel better about the guilt that they're experiencing right now. Yes. It was extraordinary. 
thinking back to it is almost like what on earth was everyone thinking because I felt that no one knew like the right thing to do or say and now I feel like a book like yours has come along and it's like Oh, I wish I had this a year ago. Yeah. But, so um, do I. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, I felt like, why is the book? Just send the book. But but that's why it was an uncomfortable read for me because I I did things in this book. Yeah. And it was like really hard in a way to know how to be a good friend. And I feel yeah. like this book will, I hope, make me a better friend as well. Would you say this book at the heart of it is about honesty? It's about integrity? It's all of that. Um, some people will come to my work because they literally think I'm just going to give them the language to say, the words to use, the tools to tick box. Like, if this happens, then X. If that happens, then Y. And I'm like, mm-mm. I mean, that stuff is easy. It's the self-interrogation and the honesty about the parts of ourselves that we ignore, we don't even know is there, or that we don't like about ourselves and that disgust us and bringing that into the light. Mm-hmm. And the well-meaningness part, because we get tangled up in thinking we're good. Yep. And that's why there's a, like a conflict in your in your heart almost. You're like, I think I'm good. Yeah. I think I'm a good person, mm. but I've also done all these things yeah. that are actually really damaging. And it's both. And it's um, I'm really intentional with my language. I, it's not but, it's and. I am a good person and I've done things right. and I can do things that cause harm. And like it's accepting those things. It's not good or bad or hero versus villain. Like it's being human and we all have the capacity to do or say things that cause harm to one another. And I think we have a responsibility to to just take more care. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what I love so much, and let's move on to the book now, The Good Ally. Such a great book. I kind of wanted to touch on like how it can be sometimes to talk in theory and talk in like academic language and what your book does which I haven't actually seen like in this kind of depth is practical day-to-day examples yeah (laughs) and was that important for you really important and I didn't want to undermine what so many academics have already done because it's not like the information isn't out there it's there it can feel like a theory which then doesn't make it feel like you can apply it to your everyday and with the course that I that I teach as well, it's the same thing. If you give people practical examples, well, I, if I say systemic racism, it doesn't always connect for people. But when I start showing, okay, let's compare and contrast these two headlines. Yeah. Okay, let's look at the health outcomes from these two people. What's at play here? What else could be at play here? Um, okay, let's look at language used to describe black people or people of colour who commit a crime and let's look at language that's used to describe people racialized as white who commit a crime um and really really unpacking that because i think then it's tangible and then you can start to see it because it shows up everywhere um but if you don't know what you're looking for then it's it goes unaddressed and unnoticed the power of language part is so interesting to me because And we'll get on to what we think ally means and what performative allyship is and and the difference and and everything to do with that. But I find that when I'm explaining to maybe an older relative why what they said is harmful, Mm. I have to say certain things to make them not tune out. If I say it in a certain way, like why saying something uh, harmful about Meghan Markle is actually layered and actually racist, how I approach that determines how they will listen to me. Yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yes. Do you find that with certain demographical age groups that like a Gen Z person is more open to this conversation? No, if I'm honest, no. Um, it, it, I mean, 
I think stereotypically you might think that, I mean, to an extent, yes, I think, you know, we've grown up in different generations and of course that impacts how we address because of our, our worldview is different um, or it's what informs our worldview is different. Um, but it's also universal. And I find that people who want to genuinely be actively anti-racist and to not cause harm will listen in a very different way to somebody who wants to defend their position and confirm their own bias. And if you've got somebody on the other side of the table with you as somebody who wants to defend their own position and confirm their own bias, I wouldn't even bother going in with trying to educate. I'd go in with curiosity. Right. Um, and it and it depends, you know, it depends on the relationship. And, and, you know, if we're talking about family or friends that we get on with, that we enjoy spending time with, because let's face it, some of us have a strange <laughs> or very weird relationships. But assuming this is someone you love and you care about and they have racist views that they don't think are racist views. I think that discernment is 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 important. They don't think they're racist views. Um then it's going going in with curiosity. You know what? This confuses me or I'm unsure. Help me understand more because like, I love you and I know you care about people. And when you say this, it doesn't make sense. Like it's out of alignment. Can you share more about why you think that? And, and that dialogue is something that can be really useful if you're having these conversations with people in your life who are in your family and aren't there yet. Mm. because isn't that what activism is and we think activism is throwing the ketchup over the fur jacket or whatever like crazy activism is in quotes <laughs> of like like we imagine that as an activist activism is actually at the dining room table yeah and and that's that's a that's a key part for me because like there is there is a very important role with caring about and paying attention to what is going on globally um, and doing things to help communities in other countries, the most powerful impacts that we're going to have in anti-racism in particular, or any kind of any kind of social justice work, what's going on in my immediate what's going on in me, what's going on in my immediate family, what's going on in my community, what's going on at work, you'll have more impact. That's where you have the most capacity for change. Which is almost the opposite of screaming it on Twitter. It's the complete opposite because you have to be intimate with people. Mm. So can we talk about the title of the book? Yes. What does good ally mean? Yeah, so um, I, I talk about this in my book a lot because I don't love the word ally. <laughs> well, it suggests, like you say in the book. No one needs saving or rescuing. I understand. So... There were several titles. One of them was going to be The Good Human. I was like, it doesn't have the same ring to it. And it doesn't speak to that part of whiteness that wants to be good, that wants to be right, that wants to be liked. And so I understand, like it's, I understand it. You know, I think it depends on who's using the word ally. How can, you know, who, who is using it and, and whether it's about perception and being seen to be looking good or if it's actually about being of service. If it's actually about being of service, then that's more aligned with the original definition for me. But I think it's been appropriated and what have you not. But I know that The Good Ally speaks to that part of of the listeners, of the people that want to do right in the world. Um, but ultimately, this work is about being a better human being. It's funny you say that about the word ally because 
And I'm, you know, I, I think there were aspects of what I shared and what I did last summer that were very performative and mm. I can see that now. And now I think if you if someone goes around saying, I'm an ally, yeah. I'm I'm like, oh, that's an ego. It's an ego because you don't need to name it. It's it's you know, like we know, is it like we I'm saying black folk, we know when people are engaged in anti-racism work. We know when people are allies because it's demonstrated in their behaviour. So you don't need to announce it. Anyone announcing it is the complete opposite. Mm. It's just demonstrated in your behaviour. Just like, you know, I certainly try to be an advocate stroke ally for other communities um, that are marginalised as well. And I don't announce, oh, I'm an LGBTQ ally. (laughs) I just hope that it's demonstrated with my friends who are in that community and also with my colleagues who are. And how I show up in the world and how I think about people and how I include people in my work. Yes. And it reminds me of something Shei Yakiwowo said about, who's the founder of Glitch, who said that it really is, what would you do in your day-to-day life and what would you do online if you saw someone being shouted out in the pub and you're seeing someone being shouted out on Instagram, it's the same. We should mm. act the same. Mm. But the way that we can do that without causing more harm and causing more attraction to something, that's where I slipped up with somebody acting up online if someone has said something and you point them to the work of an anti-racist educator you're actually creating more of like a public almost not pile on but people are then going who aren't educated and it can make things worse it can if people aren't ready i mean I, i i get it on one respect because you see the problem and you think well there's a solution to that problem but it very much depends on where they're at because lots of people will recommend me, oh, can we get Nova to come in and do some anti-racism training at work? And I'm like, what am I walking into in your organisation? Yeah. <laughs> because like, it's it's all well and good senior managers wanting to, to book me and get me in and then, you know, oh, can we put you on our website and let people know that we're working with you? My answer to that is no, you can't. You cannot use me as a pawn to make yourself look good. Do the work and then after that, we can have another chat about it. But do your senior managers really want to start doing training with me where I'm asking them about their shame? <laughs> have you cultivated an environment in your workplace where people feel safe enough to go there? The answer is is regularly no. You talk about Brené Brown in the book. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I obviously love her work about shame. But that, oh God, what a huge part of this that is. It's massive. Fear like you, and shame. Fear and shame. And, and the, you can't, you cannot do anti-racism. You cannot, let me rephrase that. You cannot live, no, let me say it all. <laughs> you cannot do anti-racism in any meaningful way. And you cannot, you just can't live in your full humanity if you don't learn how to confront and be present with feelings of shame. Shame is a human condition. We all experience it in some way, but a lot of us haven't learned how to process it and work through it. And then we end up going around in the world projecting our bullshit onto other people. Absolutely. And you say, um, you know, in, in on the proof, you say, get comfortable with being uncomfortable Mm. and I feel like that's really a sign of growth because I now can feel uncomfortable but almost be able to contain it within me now and Mm. know that is part of the human experience yeah you can hold it and and it's important because lots of people conflate 
discomfort with pain and it's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Pain, like that needs attention. Discomfort, you can hold it, you can be with it. Because a newborn baby isn't born with shame or inherent necessarily inherent bias. So, But they it- learn bias pretty quick. Children, children learn um, nonverbal cues. There are uh, studies that show children learn nonverbal cues, start showing signs of learning nonverbal cues as young as seven months old. So they're learning who, is, who in society is more valuable and who isn't and where do I sit within that. They start to prefer faces of the same skin colour um, from three months old. Wow. And they start demonstrating racial bias actively in their behaviour from as young as three years old. Wow. So no one's born with these isms. On day one. On day one, but you see how quickly we learn them. Absolutely. And how quickly babies pick up on fear. Yeah. Which Ooh, is what you just massively. said. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That is so, so interesting. And um, I'm just so glad that this book really goes there in terms of the variety that, of topics you offer. This isn't just like about one thing necessarily. It's yeah. about lots of different things. How did you decide what was going to go into this book? I don't know that it was conscious. Like my brain, my I have I have too many ideas than pages. <laughs> like that yeah, book yeah. could have been double the length. <laughs> my head is like, no, but it's 400 plus pages. I think we need to cut. No, no, don't cut that. Don't cut that. Leave that in. Um, but I have so many ideas and and I guess... Some of it was informed by seeing how my students interact with and engage with certain topics. I was like, okay, that needs to go in the book. That needs to go in the book. That's a big one. Um, other things are just things I wanted to to share. Um, and and some just some things just emerge. Like I get very vivid dreams and ideas come to me while I'm sleeping. Oh. And I have a book, a journal next to me, and I write them down. Um, my book cover idea came in my dream. Wow. Um, and I've, I've been writing this book since 2018, so I've had a really long time to sit with the content. And um, the f- very first iteration of it was very corporate and um, with some feedback from, from some publishers, we, they asked if I, if I would make it for the individual change maker. And I was like, that's who I talk to anyway. Yeah. And then that really allowed me to just expand on where I go. Incredible. And on that topic of writing the book, I, mm. I think I heard you on another podcast say that the, in one of the first drafts, you didn't realise you were code switching with, oh your, with your writing. Because, you know, this is what I love about you, is you are so, you, you are taking people in in this book and you're not messing around. <laughs> but underneath it, there's just like this love mm. that radiates. I don't know if I just get that from you. but You're not the first person to have said that. Um, I get quite emotional, actually, because it sounds it sounds cliche, but it underneath all of this, it is about love, because if we loved ourselves and we loved on one another, we wouldn't cause harm in this way. We wouldn't continue to pe- perpetuate harm and suffering to one another. Um, and I know that makes it, it, it can feel like it makes it a bit reductive sometimes, but if you strip away all of the, the complexity that's what's that's what is missing because the very foundation of racism wasn't you know that was born out of really cruel inhumane anti-human behavior and again this is about being being human um so 
I can't remember the question you asked. Well, I also got very emotional reading this book because at the end, the epilogue, you know, you, you've, we, you know, if you've read this book and you've really taken it all in and you, you know, it might take you a while to get through it because you might be like taking your time, doing the practical. Yeah. You shouldn't read it in a hurry. No. Necessarily. It's not like to gulp it down. This is something to like savour and read and do more yes. importantly. But at the end, it's very moving, the epilogue. You talk about your own healing. I didn't expect it to be at the end, but it was beautiful. Thank you. There's a there's a story behind that. Um, my editor said, "I think we can lose this section because we the pace there was a re- there's a bit at the end that, where it's a natural ending, right? In the chapter before the ed- the last chapter before the epilogue." And she said, I think we can cut this out. And I and so I changed things around, moved it, tried to condense it, completely culled it, and I kept coming back. And so that was part of the final chapter. And I said, I just can't let go of it. I said, it's such a big part of my anti-racism journey. It needs to stay in. And so my editorial director at HarperCollins, so my editor was um, freelance, my editorial director at HarperCollins came back and said, let's keep it as an epilogue and mm. I was like yeah yeah it's perfect <laughs> and I'm not going to say any more because mm. people need to buy the book and read it but <laughs> honestly Thank amazing you. amazing writing as well just um very moving as well so could we move on to talk about boundaries and well-being and all things not work <laughs> well <laughs> right. I suppose it's all to do with the work um but I know that we have a mutual friend in Selena Barker who's been on this podcast before and we are obsessed with the nap ministry oh yes the um instagram account that is basically like turning like napping and resting and into joy Mm -hmm. but it's also we need to kind of be clear that it's run by a black woman yes i believe and it's very much it's very much about black joy yes and the fact that pushing back on productivity actually means it's more weighted and more like meaningful in a way from that perspective yeah well it's every it's anti-racist it's anti-capitalist it's like it's all of that stuff because for black people so much of our value and our worth has been based on what we produce right our value was not we didn't have any intrinsic value based on the people who who wrote in law um that we were less than human um and our only value was in what we could produce so that's you know it's it's very very intentionally anti that um, but then also as a society, we've also learned that our, <laughs> to produce and that our, you know, our worth is only around how busy we are or how much we're hustling and, um, and that rest is, is, uh, uh, lazy and that resting makes people feel guilty or that it's a waste of time. Some really unhealthy habits mm-hmm. that are actually a form of self-harming, if I'm honest. Our relationship with productivity is is crazy how have you how has that changed for you because I ask people this a lot but I'm really genuinely interested in the answers because if you love what you do or at least you have a purpose this your job is very different I think to maybe something that is just kind of like clock in and clock out (laughs) (laughs) exactly this is absolutely all-encompassing um how is that for you switching off is it possible it's it's not it's not even is it possible it's necessary um, because I've been on the other side of that as well. And when I don't, it has a detrimental impact to my well-being. Um, 
and that shows up in my body as trauma and ill health so it's it's necessary and also for me now it's 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 intentional and it's conscious so currently we're in book tour mode and I mean, no one talks about the fact, no one talks about the pre-launch stuff, like all of these articles you have to write and suddenly they all have deadlines at the same time. And I'm also hosting my own launch as well, which so that's the admin of an event that I didn't really think about. <laughs> like, oh my God. Um, but I've hired someone to help me with just book tour management. And she's a black woman, shout out, Sid. She's a black woman and... Um, I think I'm teaching her about boundaries and rest because I'm like, I don't want anything in that my diary after this time. And I know it's free and I know it's urgent. It's not happening. We need to find another time. I'm, I've got one day where I've got an early start. Um, so very long hour day. I think the day starts at half past four in the morning. And then the day after we had a podcast already booked in. So the podcast was there first and then this other thing emerged, um, which was immovable. And I said we need to move the podcast later. And if they can't do it, we need to find another time. If they can't do it, we have to, we have to pull out. Like I'm not overextending. Mm-hmm. I want to be well and have energy and enjoy it. So I have regular what I call rest days and regular recovery days. So recovery days are factored into my working week. So if I'm doing a lot of public speaking or delivering workshops, they drain me energetically. So I know the day after, at least I need a recovery day and that's not doing anything. Mm. That's a radical rest day. That's a day where I might not get out of my pyjamas. That's a day where I'm not cooking anything. I'm saying, okay, to hubby, you cook on that day. Or we have something that's pre-cooked in the freezer. I'm not doing anything. Yeah. Which sometimes my mum finds really, what are you doing today? Nothing. Yes. <laughs> I'm actually Consciously doing, nothing. Consciously nothing. And sometimes that's being in silent for a period of time. Um, just sitting in silent, no tech, nothing. Because also there's an element of me turning on the TV and seeing nonsense. Um, um, and then a, a rest day is a bit more intentional. So I will be more doing. So it might be that I'm... I love to paint pottery, for example, or reading or going for a walk or um, catching up with a friend to an extent. They're, they're a bit more doing-y, but they're about resourcing me. And so I have re- recovery days as standard and half half rest days where I can find them. Or even if I can't manage a half day or a full day rest day, then it's two hours. Mm. What can I do to resource myself? And then... Um, I do regular meditation as well with a group, with it all, well, so it's not all black, I lie. Sometimes they do all black meditation sits and other times it's mixed. And um, I find that I'm more more likely to practice if I'm held accountable by being in a group with people mm-hmm. who also centre their well-being in that way rather than relying on myself. And that really helps me keep grounded as well. So, and then... Um, Trying to be intentional, I say trying because I'm still a work in progress, but being more intentional with the food I eat. Like if I'm low on energy, learning about what foods do I need to eat today? Okay, I'm iron deficient. Let me grab a banana. Mm -hmm. So just knowing or, you know, knowing what what my body needs to help me. I love that. Yeah. That is so useful and so helpful. I'm sure people listening might even think, you know, that difference between rest day and recovery day could apply to different strenuous things to do with their job no matter what that could be like physical or emotional or mental 
that's amazing and such a powerful message that I feel like we still need to talk about that to do your best work it doesn't actually mean having a full diary Mm. and especially with creative stuff there's the element of being self-employed and I feel this I still feel it now and I probably will always feel it at this anxiety this scarcity Mm. of well if I don't accept this then I don't know when the next job will come in and I'm more than aware that that feels even more present um because it's always been present for me like it's still present now but I also recognize that when I was on income poverty it was even worse um and so I was more likely to put myself in a state of burnout because I'm I'm hustling I'm trying to get work I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to manage my bills for the next paycheck um even then the moments for rest and recovery were vital because then I'm more creative. Mm-hmm. Then I'm more impactful in the work that I'm doing or the outreach that I'm doing to contact people and to pitch myself and whatever it is. So we can still find pockets. Mm-hmm. It, it makes us more efficient, focused and effective and it keeps us well. Absolutely. And another part of this conversation that I found in terms of the book really interesting is that there can be shame to do with being able to rest because how lucky are we that we can now yeah and I found that really interesting that it it, we need to unpick these things so that they don't hold us back from resting yeah or you know all that x y and z is happening in the world and and that's much worse than what I'm going through and therefore like that's not it that's that's not that's not wellness um and for me when I frame that in the book a reframe that really helps me when I go back into that behavioral pattern because it is a pattern Uh, guilt is a big one guilt and shame massive for obvious reasons for me always working on my guilt and shame but a a, a helpful reframe for me is that my god my ancestors wanted nothing but rest and that's what they want for me Mm -hmm. yes they want the joy they want the rest they want the liberation um and maybe that's the most meaningful way that I can honor them Mm, absolutely on that topic of joy then just to end this amazing conversation and honestly people listening please go and get this book it's it I can't really explain how much I loved it it's very very powerful and you're just the way you speak you know it's actually quite a big book but um <laughs> it get through it really is not easily but like as in the way it's very colloquial I think is what I'm saying and conversational mm. and so you get completely drawn in um, what are you doing to bring you joy at the moment? Ooh, or any new discoveries? <laughs> no, let me think. No, I mean, I've all, I'm, all, I'm quite playful in my personality anyway. So I've always been like that. I get that from my dad. <laughs> so just silliness, like hubby and I laugh every day. Um, I love being by the water. I mentioned earlier, I love painting pottery. I have various playlists on Spotify that if I need elevating in whatever mood it is or with you know if it's mellowing down or if it's getting me activated and energized and ready to speak or just lifted up I've I, def- multi- I definitely think I've seen you dance in your kitchen yeah, on you have multiple gospel plate like gospel music will always do it for me regardless of my my mood whether it's sadness or grief or exasperation or just complete joy always is my go-to um especially for joy I can't I cannot listen to gospel music without being moved by it there's something otherworldly that happens when I play that 
Um, so music is massive. Laughter. Um, yeah, just spending time with people who 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 lift me and energize me. Um, yeah, so no no new hacks. Just making intentional space for those things because I think when we're under pressure or feeling guilty, we drop the things that bring us joy. And actually, joy is necessary, and joy and pain can and do coexist. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what an amazing example of that you are, that you can have this kind of wealth of experiences, but also feeling and that is being a whole person. Yeah. And I've actually just finished reading Martha Beck's book again called The Way of Integrity. It's about being whole. Mm. And the minute you're whole, she says, that your your life really starts to begin. Mm. And that's really the challenge of all of this. And And like you said, healing and when when I think about like the world healing, you think it does start with the individual, every single one of us. Mm-hmm. So every single person, read this. And it is like, if I named the book as healing or collective healing, people wouldn't engage with it. Mm. But that's what this is about. Um, racism makes us a little bit less human. Mm-hmm. And this is about living in our full humanity and doing what we need to to get there and and be human and you know experience the sometimes conflict of being human yeah um that's why it's called doing the work isn't it because it's work it is work it's intentional um and it's considered and it's honest and it's with integrity Mm. well thank you so much for doing this podcast i just want to talk to you for hours and hours and hours um but you know thank you for your work genuinely and 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 this book and you've really inspired me to go even further with a lot of those uncomfortable places I'm going to keep dig dig digging and um I hope everyone does thank you thank you so much